through song, may have seen people giving of their offerings and their tithes to further the kingdom, to honor God. Uh, and, and, um, and, and they've been here and been part of that. And now they leave here and they're going to a place where they're given the word in a different form in a way that is appropriate for them, that will help them to grow. And, and it's a really wonderful thing that's happening because just as we spend time in God's Word, so they are too. And the Word becomes a seed that's planted in their heart. Some of those kids already know Christ, and so it feeds their soul, and they grow, and they become more like Jesus. And some of them don't know Him, and, and they're hearing about Him, and they're having an opportunity. And, and that seed gets planted. And with our prayers, our perseverance, the work of the Spirit of God through this church and in their hearts, some of those kids are going to put their faith in Jesus Christ. And they will not be the same. Their eternity will be secure, just as ours is. Now, anyway, it's a good thing to see that happening. And I, I once again, want to welcome you. I'm glad you're here today. Our, our scripture reading today... Uh, comes from the book of Ephesians, letter that Paul wrote to that particular church. And this is what he says. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Yeah, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is God's word that goes out from his mouth. It will not return empty, but it will accomplish God's desire and achieve his purpose. And that's my prayer for us today, that God's word would go forth. And now before the ministry of the word, I invite you to pray with me one more time. Father, again, um, speak to us. Open our minds and our hearts. Work in us to change us. For we all confess that we aren't what we should be. But we also gladly confess that you are our God and that you have us firmly in Thanks. All praise and honor be to you. In Jesus' name. So Calvin, uh, of Calvin and Hobbes fame, you, you know the comic strip, was told uh, something that maybe one of your parents or grandparents told you. Uh, Calvin, uh, as little boys often do, had made a particularly ghastly face about something. This time, in response to, if I recall rightly, something his mother had made for dinner. And she responded by telling him that if he wasn't careful, his face would freeze like that. It, it didn't have quite the effect on Calvin that his mother wanted. He thought, cool, let's see if it's true. And so Hobbes and him, in his madness, uh, they both walked around making ugly faces to see if it would freeze that way. And nothing his mom or dad said made any difference. 
The lunacy ended, however, when his arch nemesis, Susie, an admitted girl, walked by, and Calvin thought his features would horrify her, and instead, without breaking a stride, she said, What happened, Calvin? Get your head caught in a blender? It's an improvement. Instead of Calvin keeping that face, it melted back to normal, and he walked away a subdued little boy with a face that maybe he deserved. Now, I never tried what Calvin tried, although I made my share of gruesome faces, so I don't know from personal experiences whether a face can freeze or not, but I do believe something that I used to tell my own children as they were growing up, that we are becoming the people we will be. I, I don't know if our looks will be affected, but our character, our heart surely is. Nothing that you and I can do can get us into heaven. But once we have put our faith in Jesus Christ, God is at work in you, in me, in us, uh, remaking his image, restoring his image in us. And the things that we do or don't do matter a great deal in that process. The more we are like our Savior, the more we will enjoy God and his people and heaven itself. The old preachers used to say the things we did in this life were the raw materials that God was using to prepare our mansions in heaven. So they would say, send up good material because it's going to be with you for a very long time. It's biblical, you understand. Heavenly rewards are a reality of our faith. The things that we do, which affect the people that we are becoming, matter for the life to come. But they also make a difference in how effective we are in this life. And that's the focus of our text today. We are an integral part of God's plan and purpose. The things we do and the people that we are becoming matter a great deal. So let's see what God has to say to us today about love, labor, and light as we turn once again to the book of Romans, this time to chapter 13, where we're going to be considering verses 8 through 14. And of course, the text will be on a, either side of me on the screen. There are three different but related uh, main thoughts in this text, which we are uh, going to look at this morning. They're in some ways uh, reflected in the title of today's message, Love, Labor, Light. And we're going to look at each one of them and see how they fit together. And the first one has to do with our motivation as believers. Now, we've spent the last several weeks looking at how Christians ought to relate to different groups, how we ought to relate to other believers and those outside the faith, how we should treat those who mistreat us, and what our relationship to human government ought to look like. And then the Bible circles back around to an idea which began this entire section of Scripture in order to remind us of the importance of love. You know don't you, that the reason you do something matters as much and possibly even more than the thing itself? The right act for the wrong motive is not only impotent, it's not even really the right act. While even the smallest 
genuine effort coming out of a heart of love is powerful and God sees that it meets the needs of the moment. Love is to be our motivation and our text tells us two things about Christian love. That to love is an unending necessity and that it completes the law. So let's begin with the first part of verse 8. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Love is an unending necessity. The text calls it a continuing debt and is with all debts paying it is a necessity. It is a biblical principle that we ought to pay our debts. In the previous section, when dealing with Christians' relationship with human government, we were told to pay what we owed, whether it was revenue or respect. And here we're told to let no debt remain outstanding. In other words, pay your debts. And yet, when it comes to love, well, it's a debt we can never repay. It's a continuing necessity. It's a continuing debt. There are things in life that are just like that. Things which we do that must be done, that we cannot stop doing them. That is, if we want to live. If you want to live, you have to keep on breathing. Your heart has to keep on beating. You have to eat and you have to drink. And if you stop doing any one of those things, you die sooner or later. Sooner for some, later for others. But in the end, if you stop doing them, you will die. Love is like that in the spiritual realm. It is as necessary as a beating heart or breathing and eating and drinking. I have to tell you, for the most part, I don't think it's hard. I mean, we hardly ever think about the beating of our heart or our breathing, just the way that we're made. And often our love is like that. It comes naturally to us. We love our parents. We love our children, our spouses. We love our friends and our family, our church. We love God because he loved us first. And aren't you glad that he did? But we do love him. We even enjoy loving most of the time. I mean, we need to eat and drink, but it's a source of pleasure and enjoyment for us. And we need to love, but think of all of the joy that comes from that. Just, just listen to a grandparent talking about his or her grandchild, and you will see, as well as hear, that love right then as they're talking, bringing them joy all over again. Yes, I know. Those natural loves can degenerate. They need to be sanctified. But they're a good place to start that whole process. And yet, sometimes love does demand more from us. We're to love our enemies. We're to love those who are not easy to love. Our love for our family, our friends, our fellow Christians shouldn't stop because our pride is injured or our feelings are hurt. So, even having said that, even when it's hard, we almost always discover, sooner or later, haven't you discovered this for yourself, that when we make the effort to love in those hard times, even when we're not feeling like it, don't we discover something happening to our heart as it, as it softens, melts, begins to beat again? And all along the edge, it's tinged with the glow. 
as our emotions begin to match our motivation, our purpose to love that other one who has been so hard to love. Our natural loves are being sanctified and our decisions to love are being ratified by the Holy Spirit. Our love and our emotions are not always identical. This fallen world, they often are in disparity. It wasn't always that way. That discontinuity entered our world with sin. And it will not always be that way when the image of God is finally restored in us completely. Our emotions will once again perfectly align with our will. And in the meantime, the love that comes from our decision to love in spite of our emotion is real love and it is a real payment on a continuing debt to love. Aren't you glad? I know I sure am. Aren't you glad that God never stops loving us, that he just keeps on in spite of all of our failings. That's what he wants us to do. As Christians, our motivation is love, which is a continuing debt. But love also fulfills the law. So let me read verses 8 through 10, and we will talk about what that means. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be, are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Three separate times in that relatively short passage, we're told that love fulfills or sums up the law. Now, there's also here, uh, and I just want to mention it briefly, there's a kind of a subtle expansion on who we're to love. Moving from loving one another in the beginning of verse 8, meaning Christians are to love other Christians, uh, to loving the other, as the Greek text puts it at the end of verse 8, meaning we're to love those who aren't Christians, to loving our neighbors as we love ourselves in verse 9, meaning we're to love anybody that crosses our path. See, we are indebted to love, but when we do that, when we do love, we are fulfilling the law. Now, just what does that mean? Well, maybe we could think of it, uh, the commandments. Maybe I could think of the commandments as a cup. A teacup or a coffee cup. It's just an illustration. And, and if you break the commandment, those sharp edges uh, of that break hurt others. I mean, it hurts you too, but the focus here is on others. But let's say for the sake of illustration, I mean, we know it's not possible. We can't keep the commandments. We're always breaking them. But let's just imagine for a moment that we could keep the commandments, that we didn't break the cup at all. What would you have then? Well, you'd have a cup. Uh, only a cup. It's not broken, but it's only a cup, and it's an empty cup at that. You see, the purpose of a cup is to hold something. And love is what fills that cup. It fills the commandment. It's what makes it complete. It's not just not hurting someone. It's doing what you're supposed to do. It fulfills the purpose of the commandment. 
But you have to understand, love does even more than just fill the cup. For we have broken the commandments, and the cup is in pieces. So it's love that takes those pieces and puts them back together in some manner in our broken life so that we can give a drink to others so we can love them and give them what they need. Love fulfills the commandment. It makes them complete in our lives because of the love of God and the cross of Christ. And it fills them to the brim with itself to give the thirsty a drink. Our motivation as believers is to love. A continuing debt that fulfills the law. Which brings us to labor. I have to tell you, I was going for the alliteration in the title of the message, can't you tell? Love, labor, life. <laughs> and that word labor is not in the text, uh, though the thought is there. We're going to have to do a little work to get to it. But the NIV does a really, really nice job with the Greek text right here. As it transitions from the discussion of love to our labor, as it transitions specifically to when, the when of our doing. It's a call to action. We must love now, for it may be the last moments in which we can work. So the beginning of verse 11 makes this transition that we just talked about. And it says, and do this, that is pay this continuing debt of love which fulfills the law, understanding the present time. So if we should love, if we're to love as we should, then we need to understand the times. And when we understand those times, we know that we're called to act, that we are to work with all of our heart. You begin to get the idea from the next part of verse 11. The hour has already come for you to be awake from your slumber. You see, you don't do any work when you're sleeping, and the Bible says it is past time that we should be awake. Your family, your friends, your church, your co-workers, your fellow students, the entire lost world has what you need. We have been believers for a while now. We should have grown in our faith. Verse 11, again, wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Time is running out. What have you done with your life? God has left you here on purpose. You have a job to do. Wake up and get to work. Your salvation is sure. You have no worries on that account. But others, they are lost and they need you. And just so we know how critical the need is, the beginning of verse 12 tells us to think as though we are in the very last moments. We read, the night is nearly over and the day is almost here. The clock is ticking. Time is running out. The two-minute warning is long past. We score now or we don't ever score at all. There's a force in the Greek in both of these clauses. The night is already well advanced. The day has already arrived. We have to think as though we are existing in a single moment poised between the final end of night and the dawn of eternal day. The moment will change in the twinkling of an eye. It is no more than a thought. It can't be measured. It can only be theorized and it will be over as quick as it came. 
in my mind, I see a, a huge block of granite that's God's judgment. It's weighing an enormous amount, it, it, more than the earth itself. Its heaviness is beyond measure. And it's balanced precariously on a thing called time. A needle-thin tower that doesn't appear to be strong enough to support that load. And the needle is already showered, shattered and the weight is already tipping our way. The idea is those, like those times when you held your breath waiting for some event you knew was coming and is already upon you. Like that time you saw the car coming through the intersection against the light the moment before it impacted you or when the tire on your bicycle got caught in that rut and you were falling and you could see the ground rushing up at you. You held your breath before it knocked it out of you. That's the moment. That's the understanding of time that you and I should have. Now, I know what you're thinking. How I wish I didn't, but I know it. I, I really do. I know it all too well. Christians have been believing that for 2,000 years now, haven't they? That's what you're thinking, isn't it? Then the thought, how do I know that I don't have another 2,000? And somehow, slipped in with those things, which are true enough, but slipped in with them by the world or the sinful nature, the devil comes and thought, well, I always have tomorrow. Time doesn't work the way we think. Today is a day of salvation. That's what the Bible the moment that passes never comes again. God in his grace might provide another moment, but we don't dare to presume. And all of those moments that have passed are summed up in that one instant when that block of God's judgment will come crashing down. All of those moments are last moments. One commentator put it this way, on the certainty of the event the Christ will return. Our faith is grounded. By the uncertainty of the time, our hope is stimulated and our watchfulness aroused. Now, Christians are sometimes ridiculed because we say we believe Christ could return at any moment, and he still hasn't come. I'm inclined to reply, if only we had believed more truly and more consistently in our lives and down through the ages, maybe our world wouldn't be in quite as bad a shape as it already is. Our motivation as believers is to love. It's a continuing debt which fulfills the law. And as we understand the times, we're called to act. We must love now. We must labor now for these are last moments when we may work. And so in the text now, we come to another transition where we move from our labors on through those into the realm of light, a, a, a place of real transformation where we take off the old person and put on the new. 
And so we picked up a text in the middle of verse 12, and we'll read through the end of verse 13. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. We're still talking about our labor now, but our eyes are beginning to shift focus. They're turning away from the things that we do to the things that we are becoming, the people that we are becoming in Christ. And the Greek, which this language that the New Testament was written in, is really interesting right here. Now, I'm not going to go into the details, but the verbs which are translated in the NIV and most other translations as imperatives, that is a kind of a command, telling us what we are to do. But, but there's another possibility, uh, another way we could translate them. We, we might be dealing, and I think we are, again, for reasons I'm not going to go into, but we may have here kind of a rhetorical device, which we can translate as a question, which the text is asking of us. And if so, we would translate verses 12 and 13, which I just read to you differently. We would translate it this way. You have, in the past, put off the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light, haven't you? You have behaved decently as in the daytime, haven't you? Not in those debauched ways of the world around us. You know, if that's what Paul meant, and again, I think it is, then we're not so much being commanded to do something as we're being invited to remember to remember that we have, at least at some places in our past, lived as we're supposed to live. To remember who we are in Christ. Does that matter? Does it matter that we remember those times when we've been overcomers? Now, maybe it does. Jesus reminded his disciples of the miracle with the loaves and the fish as a way of encouraging their faith. The Old Testament did the same, and it reminded the Israelites of all that God had done for them. The writer of Hebrews thought so when he wrote this. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you endured a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting possession. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. Remembering past victories can strengthen us for present battles. You know, they say that if you fall off a bike, you need to get right back on. One of the things that can help it e get back on, make it maybe a little easier, is remembering that you've already ridden the bike. It's knowing that you can ride it. Now, in my life, there have been so many times when I've come face to face with situations that were simply beyond my ability. And at those times, all I have ever been able to do was say, Lord, I need you. I cannot do this myself. What do you say to someone whose baby has died? I'm just not that smart. 
yet knowing he's never let me down in other things matters at a time like that. Other funerals, other times when I didn't have any answers. And I didn't have answers at that point. But where God met the need that hour helped me to get through the next hard time. And remembering what God has done uh, through you, Remembering what you have done by God's grace can help you get through whatever it is that you're facing. Now, I don't want you to put too much weight on my translation. If you want to think of these verses as they appear in the NIV as simply as commandments, as imperatives telling you what they ought to do, you certainly won't be wrong. But if while you are trying to obey these things, you happen to find yourself struggling, maybe remembering that you have already overcome in other ways in your past. Maybe that will encourage you to keep on keeping on. Yet, you know, even this remembering, we know this. We're not the only one in the picture. We understand the things that we have done we did not do in our own strength. We know we did them because God is real and he lives in us. Which brings us in this text to a command, an imperative and the imperatival mood which cannot be taken in any other way. This is an instruction telling us what we ought to do, that we are to find strength in God. We are to clothe ourselves with Jesus Christ. Verse 14, rather, that is, rather than living in debauchery, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what you've done or at least take to heart that you've been commanded to do it. Do it by clothing yourself in the Lord. Now, you know, there are all sorts of things that um, you can read about the psychology of childhood dress-up games. And I'm sure some of that stuff is very good, and I'm just as sure that some of it's just plain nonsense, and I'm not smart enough to be able to tell the difference. Now, one thing uh, which makes sense to me is that dressing up uh, or pretending to be someone uh, helps a child to appreciate at least a little bit what it might be like to be that person. But we're not talking about make-believe here. We're not talking about uh, that kind of dress-up. We're not pretending to be like Jesus. We are to become like him. We are made in his image, and that image is being restored in us. When we put on the Lord Jesus Christ, we're remembering a very real fact that he lives in us through his Holy Spirit. When we put him on, we're giving up something about ourselves. We're covering that something with a power that's greater than ourselves. We are immersing ourselves in him. So his kind of life comes out of us. It becomes our kind of life shared with him. When I was a, a very little boy, how little, I, you can guess from what I'm about to tell you, but my father, who is not a man of big stature, though he's a man of large heart, he would come home after riding his motorcycle and he'd take off his jacket. Uh, you know the kind, don't you? The black leather jacket, right? With all the silver zipper, zippers on it. I loved that coat. I thought it was the coolest thing. And I would take it, and somehow I'd manage to get that zipper zipped up, and then I'd put it over me. Not like a coat. My arms weren't in the sleeves. 
my whole body fit right in that shell of that jacket and I could put my arm down to sleep or I could look out the neck hole I was immersed in that coat I wasn't pretending to be my dad I mean I had done that at times I pretended to be my dad but not then then I was just inside his coat and I felt safe I felt secure I felt like somehow my dad was all around me but I was still there in his coat and everything was right with the world I think that's what putting on Christ means. We immerse ourselves in something bigger than we are, whose power surrounds us, who lives in us, so we can be ourselves. Not that self we know so well, affected as it is by the clinging sin, but the self God intended when he first thought of you and me, the self being remade in the image of his son. From that place in Christ, clothed with him, we really live out our faith. And friends, since it's commanded, it is a choice that we make. And the next time you find yourself in a hard place, then turn to God and say, help me. I want to put on Jesus. Try that and see what happens. You know what I think? I think that you and I have put that coat on many times in our life. We've closed ourselves in Jesus Christ and we've tasted that freedom. And then sin uh, wheedles us out of that coat. We look out the neck hole and sin dangles something before our eyes that we think we want. And before you know it, we've gotten outside its warmth and safety. Uh, That's why our text closes with these words in verse 14. And do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. King James is so good here. And make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. That's what we do, you know. We make provision for the sinful nature. We don't jump right into sin, hardly ever. We, we think about it first. We play with it with our mind. We look away, and then we look back. It calls, we ignore it. It calls again, we answer. And then we're the ones who's doing the calling. But it never ignores us. It's a hunter looking for the next kill. The longer we linger in its presence, the stronger it becomes. So don't make any provision for it. One writer put it this way. Put in very simple English, do not plan for sin. Give it not welcome. Offer it no opportunity. Kick it off the doorstep, and it won't be in your house. You're either inside the coat or outside. There's really no in between. Christ never leaves you. But you can wander away from him in the darkness, in the wilderness all the sorrow that comes with that. Love, labor, light. Our motivation as believers is love, the continuing debt which fills the law. We, we, we understand the times. We know we're called to act. We must love now. We must labor now, for these are the last moments. 
So come into the light. Turn your eyes to Jesus. Remember who you are, where you have come from. Wrap yourself in Jesus. And don't play host to sin. Jesus said these words to those on the outside of faith. And as a reminder to the rest of us. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? And to all people, he said, for the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels. And then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Love. sought us out before we ever gave you a thought. That when we turned to you and put our faith in you, you made us your own. We belong to you now, Lord, forever and ever. And we also thank you that not only will you never leave us or forsake us, but that you will continue that good work you have begun in us. Help us, Lord in all our weaknesses along the way so we can give you the glory and the credit. In Jesus' name, amen. week and as our pastor tells us don't let the moment get away from us mm-hmm.